today we are going to finally meet this little Hebrew family, mom, dad, and their two sons. They are going to leave their home in Bethlehem in the land of Judah because there is a famine in the land. And as you read through your Old Testament, you will find that there are several famines. They are God's judgment on the sin of the nation. And if you have read the book of Judges, anybody take the time to read the book? And I won't even ask that because then you'll be convicted. <laughs> but now that you are convicted, if you haven't read the book of Judges, go read it and you will know why there's a famine in the land. There are plenty of reasons and great cause for God to punish his children. The way to God's blessing is not now and it never has been vague. It is as stark a contrast between blessings and cursings as night is from day. In fact, when they entered the promised land, God told the nation that he wanted them to stand on two separate mountaintops. He had them divide the nation and he said, half of you get up on Mount Gerizim and half of you get up on Mount Ebal and you people are gonna read the blessings out loud and you are going to read the curses. And between these two mountains, there was a valley in between. You can't get a better visual than that. The way to God's blessing is through obedience. And he let us have that wonderful picture in those two mountains. And we have to decide every day who we are going to serve, on which mountain we are going to plant our flag and take a stand. And so here in this time of the judges, when there is a famine in the land, this little family begins their journey. Uh, Ruth chapter one, we'll read verses one and two. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife Naomi and the names of his two sons Malan and Kilian. I should say up front, y'all, I don't speak Hebrew or Greek, so I may not ever get the pronunciations right. Be gracious to me, okay? And, and go off on your own and figure out how to do it. Um, so here they are, Malin and Kilian, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Now the reason Ephrathah is mentioned here, most Bible scholars agree, is because there were two Bethlehems in the day. And so this is telling us specifically which of the two Bethlehems is being spoken of. It also indicates to us that this family was of some importance. When you get this kind of detail, that's an indication from the Lord that they are a, an important family in Bethlehem Ephrathah. And the Holy Spirit gives us great direction at the very beginning of this story in the names of these principal characters. Names have meanings. It's very important to know what the names of these characters mean anytime you're undertaking a study because God gives you an idea where he's headed. Elimelech means my God is king. Isn't that beautiful? especially during the time of the judges when Israel had no king. His name was a testimony that the God of this nation is Elohim, Elimelech, my God is king. And Naomi's name means pleasant. And she certainly was. What a pleasant person to be around. And you would think that when my God is king, Mary's pleasant, everything is going to be lovely, all things great and good. 
However, things didn't look so good for their boys because Mullen and Killian, their names mean unhealthy or sickly and pining or puny. Uh-huh. Now, uh, can you just picture what they looked like? Bless their hearts. What, what would prompt a parent at birth to say, he's puny, he's pining, and this one over here, he's unhealthy, he's sickly. I could just see him sitting in the corner, mauling with his perpetual runny nose and Killian failing to thrive. But then there was their lovely, pleasant mother who adored her two beloved boys, and she cared for them. And I can't imagine that being in a time of famine would have helped their condition at all. And so their dear mother was grieved for their condition, I'm sure. And I wonder if when Elimelech decided to pack them all up and move over to Moab, if he had forgotten that God was king in Israel. What do you suppose he was thinking? What do you suppose he was feeling? Desperate times, desperate measures. My boys are not doing well, and they're eating across the Jordan in Moab. And it's only temporary, right? We'll only just go there, get the boys bulked up, and get them healthy, and then we'll come home. But he's prompted, of course, by the physical, a.k.a. the flesh. And so he packs up his little family, and he marches them across the Jordan straight to his and his son's graveyard. A sojourn, which is what he planned to do, is by definition a temporary stay. Elimelech apparently did not intend that his family should remain in Moab. The word sojourn in the Hebrew has a connotation to it sometimes of being in a prodigal situation. It means to dwell for a time, to be a stranger, but it also means to turn aside from the road, to stir up trouble, trouble or strife or a quarrel. It means to stand in awe or fear or dread. So there's a lot of meaning bound up in this word sojourn. And I think it's a cautionary tale for us because we have to be very careful of our intentions because the reality will have consequences. Elimelech planned, his intention was a sojourn. But as you will see as we continue, it wound up being a remained and then a left and a bereft. The reality was nothing like he imagined. And I know that we, as the, in the human family, we tend to look at the flesh when we're in trouble. That's the iniquitous part that is innate in every single one of us. It's that which is twisted in us. We inherited it from Adam. And all too often, we try to solve all of our difficulties by that with our own intellect or our talent or money or manipulations or whatever. Don't raise your hand, but have you ever been guilty of doing that very thing? Have you ever in your life been in a situation where you're waiting upon the Lord and you wait and you wait and you wait and then how long before you finally jump off and feel led to rush off on your own and say, catch up with me, Lord, we're going this way. I don't know if any of you have ever done that, but I have done to my own sorrow. It is no solution. It never has been and it never will be. They that wait upon the Lord, that beautiful song that Robin just led us to sing, they that wait upon the Lord, oh, strength will rise. 
Elimelech now takes matters into his own hands and he does relocate the family. Verse three, then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. Y'all, that is not a sojourn, that's a relocation. Okay, 10 years they're there. Then both Malin and Killian also died, and the woman, Naomi, was bereft of her two children and her husband. The woman was left and then bereft. That one, uh, that's one Hebrew word for both of those things, left and bereft. It means to remain, to be left over, to be left behind, to survive, and so forth. What I found as I tracked the first, second, third, fourth mentions of that word through the Old Testament, that it is steeped in loss and sorrow and hardship. It's also the root word for remnant in the Hebrew. And if you sow, you know this is true. You don't get a remnant unless the bulk of the thing has been used up, wiped out, you, or somehow you're excluding the majority to get just a small piece left. And God always has a remnant in the messianic line. And here the remnant is Naomi. She is the remnant of Elimelech. She is going to falter and, I, and I'm sympathetic. She's going to falter and she's going to say, God has dealt very bitterly with me. And I think all of us are gonna find ourselves between her comment, God has dealt very bitterly with me, and what Job said. Job said, though he slay me, yet shall I trust in him. We're all gonna come somewhere on this same area, on our journey, on our pilgrimage as we're wandering about in this wilderness, but we'll have a choice to make. And I cannot promise you that your journey will be easy, but I can promise you that God does not waste pain. He will use whatever it is that you're going through to glorify himself and to conform you to the image of his son. And that's a pretty sweet promise. Temporary, light affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory. Doesn't make it easier to go through. But that's why we come together and you go to small groups and you meet together with the sisters and you pray for one another. And in that we find strength. So after a decade, these three women, mother-in-law and her two daughters-in-law are bound in sorrow. And yet, as the last member of this prodigal Hebrew family, it's not utterly, Naomi is not left utterly bereft because she is going to receive such comfort and such strength from the most unlikely source, this young Moabitish damsel, her daughter-in-law. And you know from the past two weeks of our study that she carries a lot of baggage with her. The Moabites were an idol-worshiping people, and they worshiped in some of the most vile, despicable ways up to and including this child sacrifice to the god Molech. And it's so ugly. I don't even want to put it in your head. If you don't know it, just understand from me, this is one of the worst kinds of worship that a human culture can get involved in. And that is, it's out of that that Ruth comes, the most unlikely source for comfort to this Hebrew lady. 
And by the story's end, spoiler alert, Ruth is going to be proclaimed better than seven sons. But we have a lot of anguish and grief to get to go through before we get there. But I think even in that, contemplate the promise that you know from Romans 8 chapter, er, yes, 828. Y'all know it? Because we know unequivocally, without a doubt, empirically evidentiary proof that God is going to work all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. But we can avoid a lot of unnecessary pain and aggravation if we obey the Lord right up front. Remember, blessings and cursings. We know which mountain to get on. We just need to get on it. We are commanded to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Also to renew our minds daily and to overcome evil. That's the world, the flesh, and the devil with good. And what is good? Jesus Christ. We overcome by Jesus Christ, by the strength of the risen Christ that is at work in us, giving us everything we need to succeed. I love what uh, the writer of the Hebrews says about Jesus being the good shepherd. In part, now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, Jesus our Lord, he will, this is the promise, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. That's a beautiful promise. And as we learn to humble ourselves and submit to the will of God, and we allow him, borrowing from last week's lesson, to pour us out of our comfort zone at his good pleasure, he will transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. We are his joy, y'all. We need to begin to act like we believe it's true and walk worthy of all that Jesus has done. Now, We are told in Galatians chapter 5, verses 24 and 25, that we have, through Jesus, crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk according to the Spirit. As we continue on here, I want you to see about this walk that Naomi is involved in. If you will, you Bible scholars who love these little details, In chapter one alone, 15 times the word return is used in one form or another. Turn back, go back, return. The New Testament would call it repent. It's the same word that we read in 2 Chronicles 7.14 when God says, my people who are called by my name, and I qualify, if I will humble myself and pray and seek his face and turn, return, go back from my wicked ways. He will hear from heaven and forgive my sin and heal this land. Now the land of my heart, the land of my household, the land of my neighborhood, my city, my state, my country. If we want to see the movement of God once again in an awakening and a revival, this is for you and for me. We need to turn from our wicked ways. Back to Ruth 1, verse 6. Then she, Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab. For she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. 
Proverbs 25, 25 is a, a note I like to write there in my margin. Like cold water to a weary soul, so is good news from a distant land. Somehow, after that 10 years in Moab, Naomi has heard the rumor that God has visited his people, they are eating again, and why am I in Moab? I'm going home. Verse seven. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Moab. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return, each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. This rest this is what Naomi wants for her two daughters-in-law. The word is the same one that's used in Psalm 23, verse two. Literally, what that says is, he leadeth me beside waters of rest. It means not just rest from fatigue, it's a place of comfort and safety and security. And that's why Naomi is telling them to go home. But I'll tell you right now, you are never gonna find that in Moab. You must get out of Moab if you want to find it. And they said to her, verse 10, no, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters, go, for I am too old to have a husband. Even if I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. The hand of the Lord, Naomi calls the hand of the Lord to our attention, has gone forth against me. Listen, the hand of the Lord can be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on our obedience, and short of that, on our repentance. And as believers in Christ, we are, have the blessed assurance that we are never out of his hand. And further, that no one can snatch us out of his Father's hand. It's a hand sandwich, y'all, and you're inside. And you may fall down inside, but you will never fall out. The Lord God Almighty has you firmly in his grasp. But short of violating your free will, he will do everything he can to keep you and me from sowing seed of destruction. But if we stiffen our necks and harden our hearts and demand our own way, he's going to give it to you. He will let you have it, but he will never let you out of his hand. If you are a blood-bought child of God, and you feel that his hand is against you right now, rejoice. Because the Father disciplines those who he loves. And if you are feeling disciplined right now by the Father, that's a sign that you belong to him. You are his precious possession. That's proof. 
I have learned over the decades that even in my failures, God is becoming more and more to me rather than less to me. Ask yourself about that. Is he becoming more to you or less to you? And if it's the latter, turn back and embrace and abide in the Savior who loves you best. Now, if you're in here today and you are not a child of God, I would love for this to be the day of salvation. Let today be the day of salvation. He stands with his hand outstretched in your direction. And if you will but take it, he'll engrave your name there. And he will scoop you up and he will never let you go. Let today be the day of salvation. Take hold. Back to Naomi. She is referring here to the ancient practice. This is an ordained law by God for preserving families and their land allotments in the promised land. The Lord God Almighty has given the promised land to Abraham and his descendants forever. And the land at the very beginning of entering the promised land was apportioned to each tribe and within those 12 tribes to each family. Keeping the land in the family is crucial to the Hebrews. And so the Lord, having the foresight to know how things were going to fly, he instituted several preserving measures to make sure that the land would remain in the family. Why? Because in part, it keeps the messianic line intact. They need to know what tribe they are affiliated with, and the name of the individual is attached to the land. In fact, we read that in Numbers 25, excuse me, 26, verse 53. It says that among the land, among these, speaking of people, among these the land shall be divided for an inheritance according to the number of names. This is important to the Lord. Numbers chapter 33, verse 54, gives us the law regarding this. It says, you shall inherit the land by lot according to your families. To the larger, you get a bigger piece. To the smaller, you get a smaller piece. Whatever the lot falls, wherever the lot falls to anyone, that shall be his. You shall inherit according to the tribes of your fathers. Ancestral lands then were passed from father to son with the name attached to it. So in addition to being able to track the messianic line, this procedure would ensure a living for every family in the tribe, in the nation, in perpetuity. And we see this perpetual inheritance first threatened and then completely wiped out when Ahab and Jezebel murder their neighbor Naboth and all his sons and seize that family's land. So if you will go to 1 Kings chapter 21, we're going to hopscotch around a little bit and do a real quick uh, review of this story, but I would love for you to read it all for yourselves later in depth. 1 Kings 21, verse 1. And it says, <clears throat> Now it came about 
after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab, now I'm just gonna kind of jump around y'all. Ahab spoke to Naboth saying, give me your vineyard. Give me, he's the king. Ahab is the king of Israel. Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is close beside my house. And I will give you a better vineyard in its place if you like. If, but he goes on to say, I will give you the price of it in money if you prefer, a swap or cash. But Naboth, and I want you to catch this, look at the reverent regard and the urgency Naboth holds for this piece of land and the law of the Lord in this matter. He says, the Lord forbid me that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. To Ahab, y'all, it was just the dirt next door. To Naboth, it was a gift from God to his family forever. He could not sell it. It would be a violation of the law of God. So outraged by his refusal, Ahab goes back into the palace and he turns his face to the wall and he has a right proper pout and in walks Jezebel finding him like this. And she's like, what, are you the king or what? So they make a plan to uh, falsify testimony against Naboth and they have him murdered, stoned to death. And in the process, they shatter commandments six, nine, and 10. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor or covet thy neighbor's house. Then they go and kill all of Naboth's sons. So there are no more family members in the line to claim the family inheritance. They wipe out Naboth's name. Lord, the Lord said, Israel is mine. How important is maintaining the land inheritance to God? I gave it to Abraham and his descendants forever by name. Israel, though, he says, is mine. I am giving it to your stewardship. But a steward, remember, owns nothing. And when the landowner comes back, the steward has to give an account for it. In fact, the Lord said, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. But he expected them to maintain these land inheritances forever. And if you decided that you wanted to make a list of all the wicked things that Ahab and Jezebel got up to, you'd be surprised to see God's reaction in this little land incident. First, he's going to mobilize Elijah, the prophet, to go and pronounce judgment. And then he's going to tell him what for. And you, sister, you are going to reap what you sow. So, 1 Kings chapter 21 verses 14 through 21, roughly. That's where we're headed. And again, I'm gonna bounce around. Then they, Jezebel's henchmen, this is, sent word to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. Jezebel said to Ahab, arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth. Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth. When you're home alone by yourself and you're rereading this, take your little pencil and note how many times God refers to that piece of land as Naboth's vineyard. God didn't forget his name. It's still in the record to this good day. Um, verse 17, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth where he has gone to take possession of it. And you're gonna speak to him and give him what for. 
Thus says the Lord, verse 19, in the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs will lick up your blood, even yours. You have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring evil upon you and will utterly sweep you away and will cut off from Ahab every male, both bond and free in Israel. I think God's taken this thing pretty seriously. If you want to find out what happens to Ahab and Jezebel, basically you just read it, but if you want to confirm it, 1 Kings 22, verse 38, and Jezebel's end is recorded in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 10, and then also you read about it in that same book, same chapter, verses 35 through 37. And their dogs are going to lick up the blood of both of these people. But now Ahab humbled himself here, and so God delayed the judgment until the time of their son, Ahab and Jezebel's son. It's recorded in 2 Kings 9, and I'm going to again jump around starting in verse 24. Um, there is a newly appointed king, and he kills in battle Ahab and Jezebel's son, and then he gives the, these orders. This is 2 Kings 9, 25. The new king says about the body of this boy, this young man, take him up and cast him into what? The property of the field of Naboth, the Jezreelite. For I remember, he's quoting God now, uh, well, not yet, but he will in a minute. For I remember when you and I were riding together after Ahab, his father, that the Lord laid this oracle against him. And this is the Lord. Surely I have seen yesterday. How immediate is this in God's economy? Yesterday, the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, says the Lord, and I will repay you in this property, says the Lord. Now then, take him and cast him into the property according to the word of the Lord. That word, that land, excuse me, and its disposition holds great importance to God. In addition to keeping the messianic line intact, it was also apportioned so that you would not have a wealthy elite buying up all their poorers, poorer neighbors' property. In this way, every family would have a plot of land to cultivate forever. But there might be times in your life where your hard times hit and you could no longer afford to work your land. And hard times like that would necessitate the sale of your land. And God saw that coming too. So he, in his infinite wisdom, set out rules for that kind of transaction. The sale of Hebrew property isn't like ours today. It's more akin to a lease. And the original owner had the right to buy it back or redeem it anytime that he had the resources to do so. And the law for that is in Leviticus chapter 25, verses 23 through 34. In effect, you didn't sell the land. You sold the use of it for a specific number of years. So for example, I have a vineyard and hard times, and I can no longer afford for whatever reason. So I go to whoever, 
is a, a likely candidate. I'll pick on Sharon, and I'll say, Sharon, I have this vineyard. It's over on 4th and Vine. It's got a stone wall. It's got a well. It's got X number of vines. Would you like to lease, you know, receive this deal? She says, yes. We agree to the deal, how much she's going to pay me based on the number of harvests during the time that I'm in trouble. But... We are going to write all this down and seal it up in a scroll and put it aside. If at any time, now my resources, my uh, financial fortunes change, I can go back and I say, you only got three of the 10 years or the seven years. We only got three of the seven harvests that we promised. So I have to buy back from her the four that she didn't get. Do you follow? So that's how this transaction would work. Both parties agreed to the terms and the condition of use and the number of harvests involved. And in addition to this buyback, the Lord said every year of Jubilee, that's every 50 years, all land reverted back to the original. So if we were close to the year of Jubilee, she couldn't buy the full seven, say. If we're three years out from the year of Jubilee, all I'm gonna do is be able to sell her those three. See, isn't it perfectly, doesn't that make sense to you? Well, it makes sense to me. So, if before the, now here, we're gonna introduce this new character in the study. The Hebrew word is a goel. The English translation is kinsman redeemer. So, I'm in this seven year time, and Sharon has my property, and a wealthy relative a near kinsman comes along and says, Martha, I want you to have your vineyard back and I can buy that lease back from Sharon. All he has to do is go to that scroll and fulfill the terms of redemption and he can pay her and he restores it to me. This is the law of redeeming the land. Now, there's another, we're gonna talk about that more in a future study, so we're gonna leave that there. But the goel, this near kinsman, has to be willing and able to perform several jobs. That is one of them, redeeming the land. Set that aside for the future. Now, another law is the, to perform, the goel should be able to, willing and able, to be the fulfiller of the leveret marriage. And that is what Naomi is referring to in verses 11 through 13. The law of the leveret marriage is covered in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. Did you know you were going to go to law school today? Yeah, buckle up. So it says, when brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son... The wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Strange just means somebody outside the tribe, not like, you know, some Quasimodo-looking outfit. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's, husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of the dead so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. All right. Now, it doesn't have to be a brother. A brother in the Hebrew mind is any near male relative who is willing and able. It could be an uncle, a cousin, as long as it was someone in the family, a near kinsman, a goel. 
Because if there is no heir, the land could, be, could fall to someone outside the family and be lost forever. The law of the Leveret marriage would ensure that the land would stay in the family, the name preserved from father to son. Now, this is the deal. The widow must, the widow must go and ask him to perform the duty of kinsman, redeemer, Leveret marriage. If he agrees, well done. Thank you very much. Off you go. Have a baby. If he refused... I don't know what, what God was thinking with this, but I frankly love it. If he refuses, she is supposed to go remove his sandal and spit in his face. I'm not making this up. And declare, thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And that man had to go around for a time, one shoe on, one shoe off. And it was a sign to everybody that he was asked, but refused to do the honorable thing. And then the widow has to go to the next male relative and continue until she finds a willing and able family mentor. And I gotta tell you girls, when I think about this deeply and I remember my honeymoon days, I think I would have been more on my toes if I knew, in wartime, mind you, the days of the judges, if I did not have a child, a male child, right up front, I could be looking at my husband's brother or whoever. I don't know how y'all feel about that, but I think it would have kept you on your toes. I mean, just go, Thanksgiving is coming again. Look around that table. And I'm, I think if you were a shrewish, childless widow, uh, you might be seen to walk around with an embarrassing number of sandals slung over your back. So <laughs> I think, too, it would keep the male family members pretty tightly knit. Uh, can you imagine brothers weighing in on each other's matrimonial choices? You are not marrying that girl because you've had a suspicious cough. You know, you can just see this around the family table. But truly, what if it was a family of only daughters? Women, you have the daughters of Zelophehad to thank for this one because as they entered the promised land, they went to Moses and they said, there's only girls here and our father died in the wilderness. That's not fair. We should be able to get a piece of the land in our father's name. And so Moses said, that sounds reasonable. Let me go talk to the Lord about it. He comes back and then in Numbers 27, verses one through eight, and again in Numbers 36, that's the, the law that covers that. And so they said, this was the rule. You may inherit in your father's name, but you must. They happen to be from the tribe of Manasseh. They, the Lord said, you must marry within the tribe. If you girls choose to marry outside the tribe, that land stays with Manasseh. And so setting that up would prevent any tribe who had a future circumstance um, from having their land all splintered and divided. It's attached to the name in the family, in the tribe. So Naomi, as the widow of Elimelech, must have had a land portion waiting for her in Bethlehem. But it's been 10 years, y'all. We don't know any of the details about the condition of that land. We know they left in a famine, so it was not producing. We have no idea if it's laying fallow the whole time she's been gone, if someone's been working it. She doesn't know. She's just flying blind uh, to get back home. 
after that 10-year absence. So somehow she's heard while she's in Moab that the Lord has visited the people, the famine is lifted, and so forth. And I never wanna gloss over or make light of Naomi's condition. She is, in effect, a destitute, homeless widow. She has no idea what waits her back in Bethlehem. And in the Hebrew culture, she is in the most pitiable condition. An elderly, childless widow is the most vulnerable person in Israel. And we remember with what compassion Jesus restored the only son who was being carried to the cemetery, restored him to life and gave him back to his mother, the widow of Nain. Such compassion he felt for her. And so here we have this situation and some insight into the heart of Naomi as she pleads with her daughters-in-law not to go. She doesn't want to drag them into this homeless, destitute condition. She says again, go, return each of you to her mother's house because at least your mother has a house. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb? See, there's no way Naomi can have a child in the time frame that would qualify that new child to be the Goel, the kinsman redeemer for either of her daughters-in-law. If I even had a husband tonight, she said, would you wait for me to have this baby in nine months and then wait for that child to grow? No, go home, go home, she says. And... Uh, Orpah listens to the reason of that, and she turns around, and she goes home. And in doing that, she fulfills the meaning of her name. Orpah means fawn. So she fawns all over Naomi and kisses her and weeps and turns right around and goes back to the idol-worshiping nation of Moab, and we never hear from her again. She walks right off the pages of history. My goodness, but Ruth, there stands Ruth. But that's going to have to wait till next week, so stay tuned. <laughs> Let's pray. Father God, as we continue to look into the life of this remarkable woman, Ruth, a Gentile bride-to-be, teach us to become like her, to be Ruth-like in our walk with you. And as we do it, Lord, we know that you are, we are making ourselves ready for our bridegroom, our kinsman redeemer, our Goel, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. And the bride of Christ said, amen. amen. Now go and sin no more. <laughs> <laughs>